Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. With me today are three of the regulars. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. You just got your COVID jab. Was that today? Yeah, it was. It was very exciting. Um, it was uh, a very British atmosphere. Uh, people were obviously really happy to be seeing each other and interacting and there were quite a lot of volunteers who were who were quietly enjoying sort of bossing people around a bit and it was it was a very air raid warden circa 1940 vibe i would say <laughs> where did you have to go uh it was just a health center in north london so it was uh you know a kind of gp type place nothing very unexpected but it's 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 um quite strange because normally you know when you have a jab or you have you take a pill you take an ibuprofen or something because you've got a headache you kind of just don't think about what it's doing to you but because this is so new and i got the pfizer jab which is the um rna one which is obviously quite an innovative type of vaccine i keep thinking oh i wonder what it's doing now what are those t-cells up to it's quite, it's quite a strange strange feeling did you have a preferred brand did do they do requests uh, sadly not no i just got I, I just got what i was given you know i'd like to say that because of my you know professional involvement in covid 19 for some time that i ought to be able to demand the fries of one but but you know i, I just took what i was given <laughs> fair enough alex andreo is a writer and actor hello alex Hello. The DCMS Select Committee just held a one-off session asking Digital Culture Minister Caroline Dinanidge, if that is how it's pronounced, to explain why the government didn't negotiate visa-free travel to the EU for artists, which is causing all kinds of problems, including, I've just seen, uh, for the National Theatre. What are the implications and what did she say? Uh, this is a bit of a change of tune from Dinanidge. Um, she seems to have been taken aback just by how much noise this has generated. So in response to an urgent question back on the 19th of January, she said that the EU offer would have not, and I'm quoting her words here, would have not been compatible with the government's manifesto commitment to take back control of our borders. So effectively what she was saying is that the government chose border control over free movement of people even in this distinct area of this huge industry whose product is people. So this is why the chair of the select committee, Julian Knight, said that the arts had effectively been treated as an afterthought, and former Tory deputy Prime Minister Damien Green said to her that for the sector, this was a no-deal Brexit. So basically, if you're unable to export people in the arts, then you've got a no-deal Brexit. And that it seems everyone thought, this is too difficult to sort out, let's just talk about fish instead. So in response, she confirmed that there are no ongoing negotiations on this, either at EU or member state level, which is very worrying, but called on the EU bizarrely to replicate the UK system, which she says is wonderful and very simple, and then come and talk to us when they're ready. So it appears like the government is doing nothing about this, which is madness. The the National Theatre, as you mentioned, just cancelled, suspended all of its European touring. And let me tell you, if the National Theatre, with all the resources, cannot do European touring, nobody can do European touring. And just at the moment, of course, because um, nobody can tour, we can't actually see the consequences, but it's very obvious what's going to happen as soon as um, as soon as it's safe to tour again. Yes, I mean, in many ways, the arts is the art and entertainment industry is one of the industries which have been hardest hit by COVID, and you would expect the the government to take a really gentle approach with them, treat them very kindly, considering they have all suffered a massive massive blow but they've done the opposite they've they've basically hit them with a double walloping and when uh, things get back to normal after vaccination i suspect the arts industry will be the one that finds it the hardest to recover and it's a huge huge sector for the uk not only because of its um, sort of pure product but also because of the leisure industry that it supports around it, the restaurants, the bars. The, um, so, you know, this is one area where the UK is genuinely world-beating, and it's the area that's been snubbed most by this government. Uh, Nina Schick is a commentator and author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. 
Hi, Dorian. Dominic Cummings may be gone, but he has not forgotten. Uh, the Guardian reported the government paid over half a million pounds to Public First, a company run by two former colleagues of Cummings and Gove, to research public understanding of COVID-19. One of them, Rachel Wolfe, actually co-wrote the 2019 Tory manifesto. Uh, so there's just been a judicial review, and Cummings said he was the driving decision maker, but denied cronyism, claiming that knowing the people involved was a bonus, not a problem, because he knew they'd do a good job. Is this a good defence of cronyism that you you know they'll do a good job because they're your mates? <laughs> uh, definitely not. Look, I don't think anyone doubts that Cummings is just such an abrasive character who's made so many enemies. And if it wasn't obvious after Barnard Castle, which played out on the national level, I don't think I think it should be obvious that he has no particular respect for abiding by the rules or following protocol. So it's unsurprising that he's mired in yet another controversy. I mean, controversy after controversy. I think it's difficult really to think of an advisor who's been caught up in so much controversy as Cummings. I mean, is uh, Rasputin the only historical equivalent? I don't know. With Public First, they were brought in to do focus groups on public attitudes towards COVID at the start of the pandemic. Cummings knows the founders, he's worked with them in the past, and the Good Law Project has now challenged the contract, which you already pointed out is worth over £540,000 at the High Court because of the apparent bias. But this being Cummings, of course, he isn't just going to roll over. And um, he's claiming that they were hired because they were best for the job. And the Cabinet Office is backing that, arguing that there has to be consideration for different procurement procedures in the exceptional context of COVID. Just looking at the work Public First has done, to be fair, uh, they are a market leader in this type of public opinion polling. And putting aside Cummings for one minute, who um, is obviously going to attract a program wherever he goes, I think the interesting question really is, how do you strike the balance between due process and being nimble and responsive in an emergency situation like COVID? But yeah, as to your original question as to whether his defense for cronyism is a, is a good defense for cronyism, I think the answer is absolutely no. Because, of course, that defense can always apply. You know, say if you're in a hurry, well, obviously ask your mate because you know your mate. And it's like, well, OK, but that, that seems to be actually be a sort of that seems to be baking in cronyism. It's saying that, like, exactly. that's an argument for it. Exactly. On this week's show. Gavin Williamson and Oliver Dowden have announced a twin-pronged attack on what we must wearily refer to as wokeness, with new protections of free speech alongside restrictions on the free speech of historians. Do they add up and will they actually lead to anything substantial? The government has failed to create a reboot strategy for schools, so in part two we'll be joined by Gronia Hallahan of the Times Educational Supplement to create one. No pressure. And in the extra bit, we'll be discussing filmmaker Adam Curtis's new eight-hour magnum opus for the BBC, Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World. Were we convinced or just entertained? Before we get started, a quick reminder that our latest live Zoom is next week on Thursday, the 25th of February at 8pm. Roz, Alex and I will be joined by Naomi and Ian for an evening of chat, laughs and hard liquor. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, sign up and you'll get free access. Plus the podcast a day early and our famous t-shirts and mugs. Now, let us gird our loins for the latest battle in the government's very boring culture war. In what is billed as a last stand in the war in Woke, if only it was, two new plans have been announced which will both defend and restrict freedom of speech. How cunning. (laughs) Firstly, the government will announce a free speech champion in the Office of Students with power to find universities and student unions who restrict free speech and take action if an academic is disciplined for their views. Alex, a 2018 report by the Parliamentary Human Rights Committee found that despite uh, a few troubling examples, quote, we did not find the wholesale censorship of debate in universities, which media coverage has suggested. No platforming is actually very rare. The government press release uh, didn't give any examples. Before we talk about solutions, do you think there is a problem here? Um, The Times um, published a review of 10,000 speaker events this week. Uh, from universities and found that only six speakers had been cancelled. Four didn't have the required paperwork. One was basically a a fraudster trying to recruit people for a pyramid scheme. (laughs) And and the sixth was Jeremy Corbyn, whose rally was just moved to a larger venue. I think 
it's not a real problem. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. That doesn't mean it's not something we should talk about philosophically, but to treat it with a, with uh, urgency, especially from the Department of, of Education right now when they're trying mm. to, to sort of figure out how kids go back to school after the pandemic, it seems to me uh, a very weird thing to do. But, you know, whether whether that's the view out there, who knows? Because there are people who tells us their speech is being um, stifled uh, on every radio show and every BBC panel and uh, every uh, uh, talk show, you know, where they seem to be able to get on and air the view that they can't air their views. Well, I mean, we will, we could talk a little bit more later about, I suppose, the more, um, the more sort of nebulous issues with, with free speech and perhaps self-censorship, but we're talking here about legislation. Is it, possible to legislate this in this way because it seems to me like what will happen will an invitation for someone to speak become a a binding contract you know that once an invitation is issued by any society no matter how small nobody could do anything about it do you have any sense of how this would work legally and and if it did act in that way would that you know would that liberate free speech or restrict it further because it would mean people became incredibly risk averse of booking anyone with even vaguely controversial views because they can't scope out the reaction basically from their audience and then change their mind so will it just make people not book these more controversial speakers even more. My sense is that that's what it will do. Tom Peck says a very funny thing today. He says, Voltaire and Rousseau battled with the issue and found it impossible to resolve, so we send in (laughs) Gavin Williamson to do it. It, it, it is an enduring sort of, you know, philosophical question and, and, and balancing, you know, conflicts of rights and so on. And it's the idea that you could just come in and just go, and just like pa- pass a law and then yeah. create create loads of kind of, you know, lawsuits and court challenges. And then that, that will fix freedom of speech and never again will, and, and uh, will can, that be a problem. And, Incidentally, you can see it being challenged and failing in judicial review as well, because what will happen is increasingly over the last 10 years of this government, you know, universities have been encouraged to become basically private for-profit organizations. They've been encouraged to charge fees, etc. So what happened when those legal uh, obligations begin to conflict? What happens when loads of students um, resign from a course en masse, losing the university a massive amount of fee because they booked a racist um, speaker. What happens if someone sues the university because they found that uh, a particular speaker being engaged created a hostile environment for them in the university? Um, All these things are uh, will be very, very fun to unpick. Right. Obviously, when somebody is invited to speak, protests against that speech are in themselves a form of free speech, you know, whether that be sort of picketing outside or turning up and walking out. Um, to, so it's, it's the idea here, presumably, that that form of free speech is going to become unacceptable. I don't think it is. I don't think the government's really thought this through. I mean, universities are actually very good at creating these spaces for debate. And when you go to a university event, as I've gone to a lot in the last few years, there is always the chance for people to engage, to reply. You don't just have someone up there not being challenged in any way. And of course, there are there is usually the the uh, opportunity for walkouts and protests as well, although understandably universities have always wanted to minimise that. But the great the free speech issue is actually the great. Uh, the great mystery in this government paper. It says freedom of speech, obviously within the law, must be privileged, must be privileged at all times, and universities must keep stressing it. But that's because they like the principle of free speech, but they don't actually want to engage with the really difficult issues it raises. The paper totally swerves that. I mean, if it was to engage with them, it would take me five times as long. Universities are essentially 
being asked to be the arbiters of freedom of speech, but with a new policeman to decide if they're doing it properly. And the idea that you can rule on what free speech is in universities, retrospectively, incidentally, while claiming to be championing it, is is, is actually quite awesome in its chutzpah, I think. And I suppose the situation we've got now with, with so much having to come on uh, happen online is in a Zoom event, there is no opportunity to protest. I mean, presumably you can send a, a snarky comment in the... Um, in the in the chat box but that's that's about it so do online talks essentially make that kind of protest impossible that in a sense right now there 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 is no protest it certainly makes it more difficult um i know of cases where students and others have complained about an event or about the speakers who were invited afterwards and that you know, has been taken on board and so on. But it will certainly, for example, be harder to prove that someone incurred a financial loss if then when their meeting to a Zoom meeting was withdrawn, uh, you know, they didn't have to travel they didn't have, or, or to prove that their speech was interrupted and they couldn't make that point because naturally Zoom uh, makes it entirely possible to, to, to mute people, as we all know <laughs> very well. Um, I expect actually a majority of university events in future to be online, obviously at my university at LSE, they're all online now. And I, I would think probably about two thirds of them in the future will be online. And it may be that the more controversial speakers are deliberately put online uh, to avoid this problem. But presumably the government doesn't think that universities should be an open house for sort of Holocaust deniers and jihadis. Um, so there are lines to be drawn. So who has the moral authority to draw those lines to decide, say, the difference between a gender critical feminist and a, a sort of transphobic troll or a critic of Israel and an anti-Semite? These sort of contested areas. Can you easily define who's on what side of that line? Well, my answer to that, Dorian, as you probably guessed, is no. Um, you can't. <laughs> but the, whoever whoever ends up being the free speech champion, and I have to say that job title just yeah. And I also have this Jackie terrible Weaver. fear. Jackie Weaver. I, no, no, no. It's it's going to be Toby Young, isn't it? You just know that it's going to be Toby Young. But, well, I mean, who knows? But but it, whoever whoever it turns out to be will reveal quite a lot about the direction the government intends to take because that person will hold a lot of power. And sometimes there there will, as Alex was talking about, be a chilling effect where a university figures it's not worth the hassle to have this debate. And sometimes, particularly when a student union rather than the university itself is involved, they will deliberately set out to provoke because plenty of student unions would love to get into a scrap over this. Uh, That's what students do. Why the hell shouldn't they? They question authority. That's a good thing. And the effect will be to magnify often fairly trivial disputes by dragging them into this regulatory and legal sphere. Nina, a lot of the time when people talk about dogma and intolerance in universities, they're not necessarily talking about no platforming. As we've said, that's quite rare. They're not necessarily talking about, um, you know, job losses or cancelled books. They're talking about a sort of a more nebulous climate of fear uh, and I suppose a self-censorship. So doesn't that suggest that the solution here has to be cultural rather than legal? Yeah, I agree with that to a certain extent. Um, I mean, how does it make any sense for the government to kind of legislate what is and isn't free speech on campuses? You know, that kind of undermines the very idea of free speech. However, I think there is um, a necessity for kind of some legal measures in space, specifically when it comes to what are the limits of free speech? You know, when does something become hate speech? When is it the incitement of violence? And I think this is something that's very difficult to determine because, for instance, if you look at what's happened in the United States with Donald Trump, the fact that he has effectively been kicked off these social media platforms, I think, is a direct result of him inciting violence. However, you can see why this has now become a free speech issue. So I think there is an important cultural discussion to be had, but I think there is also room for legal some legal recourse when it comes to this debate. Relatedly, Cult Secretary Oliver Dowden is to lead a so-called Heritage Summit of 25 bodies, including the National Trust and the British Museum, to discuss contentious heritage issues. Dowden says bodies must not run from or airbrush the history upon which they are founded, but also seems to think that there is a good and a bad kind of history. It's a very incoherent (laughs) statement. So, Nina... Surely trying to expand and enrich our understanding of history and the history of the empire is obviously the big one at the moment. 
It's the opposite of airbrushing or running from it. it it's staring it in the face. So t- do you have any sense of what Oliver Dowden thinks is good history? <laughs> Look, I think on this issue, I think there is an inherent irony in the fact that each side in this, if you want to call it new front of the culture war, uh, is presenting itself as the true guardian of history and in doing so is claiming moral authority over the other. So in the Dowden corner, the argument is that if we tear down statues of slave traders or quote unquote sanitize other parts of history that are today deemed problematic, then somehow we are censoring history. Nonetheless, in the other corner, there's a view which I'm very sympathetic to because I myself am a historian by training. And that is history is never static. It's always being reevaluated and it should be. If we're talking about, as you know, the kind of Dowden corner has made it entirely about this issue, which I don't even know if it really is an issue or not. But if we're talking about removing problematic monuments or artifacts, to a certain extent, you know, I don't think we should do that. And I think it's because I'm half German and we've had over half a century of this intense national reckoning with the atrocities of our past. Uh, the feeling of collective guilt that we feel, something that Carl Jung even coined as collective schuld. You know, it's German. There's always a word for everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, that's palpable even today. It's it's a part of our identity, even people for people like me who didn't grow up in Germany. And I'm three generations removed from kind of the atrocities of the war. So. It's very interesting to me to note that a part of this reckoning with our past in Germany is through interacting with public monuments, uh, which were once venerated. And, you know, they're not removed because of they what, what they once represented, but instead they stand as a constant reminder of what they once represented. Um, so I believe that Britain has public monuments of this kind. Let them be interpreted in the context of what they once wore so that we can understand how far we've come and where we need to go. Um, meanwhile, in France, the Minister of Higher Education is targeting what she calls Islamo-leftism. Um, and a lot of the critics of um, of, sort of students and historians in this country and in the States uh, have their own obsession with what they call cultural Marxism. Now, this seems rather like the beginning of what goes on in Hungary or the Philippines, um, where there is an aggressive effort by the by the state to define what universities and historians can talk about so should we see all attacks on historians academic students as potentially sinister yes uh, i i think you know of course i'm worried about attacks on historians academics and students and this by the way i think is true as an underlying and universal principle, regardless of political affiliation, because it can and is happening on both the left and the right. I I don't have a study or figures to kind of quantify to what extent this is a problem, but it shouldn't become one that is a partisan issue. So for the context here, I should point out that Islamo-leftism is the kind of catch-all phrase in France to talk about anti-racism. It originally evolved from the idea that there's somehow an affinity between radical Islam and far-left groups. And in this context specifically, I don't condone the way that uh, Frédéric Deval suggested setting up an investigation into Islamo-gauchism. It was obviously and pointedly used as this kind of partisan political weapon. But The sentiment that she's politicizing, uh, talking about the development of the ideology of anti-racism is something I'm really interested in, not least because I'm mixed race myself. And I see how categories like race and gender are growing in terms of importance as an identity marker. But because I really think there's an important discussion to be had on anti-racism. And I think on this issue, I find myself very sympathetic to... um, the views of the African-American academic John McWhorter, which I find very compelling. I think the debate is really being led in the United States. And I do believe there's a problem if anti-racism has evolved to become the idea that racism itself is baked into the structure of society so that white people's complicity in living within it constitute racism itself. 
And while for minorities, people like me, grappling with the racism surrounding them is the totality of their experience. I, I don't think this is the truth. And as a minority, I think this idea is pernicious and patronizing. So I really wish that on these issues that have become the so-called culture war fronts, we can move away from the partisan, you know, how partisan they've become as like kind of identity markers of the left or the right, because I think they are really complex and nuanced. An objective understanding of them would allow you to be to debate them without being siloed as being somehow right wing or left wing. So finally, Alex, Nina kind of, I suppose, put um, one of the, the liberal critiques of certain new left wing orthodoxies. It's, but is the problem that we have in Britain at the moment is that it is so that this is such a partisan effort. The phrase free speech champion seems to come from mm. an astroturfed student group set up by Toby Young's Free Speech Union, which had a very clear right-wing bias and sort of lots of people who joined it almost immediately left yeah. when they realised that, 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 that they had to kind of, they had to follow a different orthodoxy. Policy Exchange, whose report inspired this policy, um, encourages students to report any politically motivated attempts to alter the curriculum and, you know, sort of bangs on about cultural Marxism. So in, are these kind of initiatives from the government, you know, likely to make things worse because they, they turn it, it's not really about issues of what should history be, what should free speech be. It's very much taking a side. It, yes. And, and you have the ridiculous situation where, you know, Gavin Williamson is proposing this thing, but he won't go on Channel 4 to answer questions about it because he's boycotting them because they're too lefty. So he's no platforming himself, as it were. To me, what this, what this represents is a panic. I think there is a panic that in, to use that ghastly phrase, in the market of ideas, they're not doing well, especially when it comes to education establishment, to higher education establishments, you know, the right wing is not doing well in the free market of ideas. Their ideas are losing, which means with a younger generation, I mean. And so what they sense is that there is a demographic change coming that may make them unelectable for generations, both here in the States, but I see it in other countries in Europe as well. So what they're trying to do is rig that market of ideas. That's what this is. They're trying to rig the market of ideas so that their ideas have an easier time out there, as it were. Well, I was talking to uh, our good friend Ian Dunt the other day um, about, I suppose, the problem at the moment is that actually the whole idea of free speech, which uh, we both consider very important, I'm sure everyone on the podcast does, is because it's being weaponized by the right, is being associated with the right. And so a lot of these principles, I think, are perhaps going to lose traction with a lot of younger people on the mm. left, even though they're really important, because they will be seen as just something that the Tories and Republicans are into. And also because I think there is a general move away from individualism. You know, the, the broader context is that in my interactions with people of a younger generation, I see a distinct move away from the individualism of the, the 80s, 90s and 2000s into something more collective, into something more family of man, into something that cares about the environment, into something that has solidarity across borders. And the right-wing ideology is very much anchored in the idea of the insular nation-state. And if that begins to crumble ideologically, there is nothing to anchor right-wing ideology. It all falls apart. And, and I think that's part of the panic. Now, all best practice suggests you set up your recovery plan immediately after you shut down a major arm of the state, like education. This government didn't do that, so what should it do? Our guest this week is Gronya Hallahan, recruitment editor and senior content writer for the Times Educational Supplement. Hi, Gronya. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, what sort of year has it been for the TES? It's been a roller coaster year, and I think back to um, February last year when we were hearing the first like talk of 
this this virus that's coming from Wuhan. It's a bit like SARS. Schools closed in when there was the the SARS crisis. Will that happen here? And I, I remember the newsroom sort of being a bit um, unsure about what was going to come next. And then since that point, it's just been one thing after another, a series of U-turns and failures, and it's it's been a it's been a pretty hectic year. Now, we know the government wants to reopen schools. Uh, pretty much everyone wants to reopen schools um, when they're safe. But how coherent are its plans? So we're still waiting today to hear what the plan will be for the return to schools. Our friends in the north, in Scotland and in Wales, they, they have their plans put together now. They've got a quite a, a tight structure of what their return is going to be like. But for us here in England and in Northern Ireland, we're still waiting to hear what this magic combination of things needs to happen in order for schools to fully reopen. There's been rumours leaked, as there usually are on a Sunday, saying that two two different rumours, one that all schools are going to go back together, primary and secondary, and another saying that primary will be first with secondary following shortly after. But as of today, we still don't know exactly when we're going to get a full plan of what the reopening will be like and when it does reopen, what that reopening will even be. Are they still talking about the 8th of March? The 8th of March still seems to be the the key date. So we think that we'll be going back on the 8th of March with primaries and secondaries possibly together or primaries first and secondaries afterwards. But whether or not that turns up, we're still not sure. Now, we've already, uh, obviously, the schools reopened last year. Um, Has the government learned anything from the experience of last year, both in terms of um, obviously limiting the the spread of the virus within schools and keeping everyone safe and also making uh, adjustments, you know, adapting to to issues like um, obviously disruption to exams? What's it what's it sort of going to get? What do you think it's it's hoping to get right this time that it didn't last time? Well, disappointingly, but predictably, it doesn't look like they've learned any lessons from last time. We, we saw from a small number of schools who employed things like a rotor system and had a lot of success with it, that this time round, rotors like the last time will, will be ruled out. So those schools that did try and do rotors and were eventually stopped or have tried to sort of put some sort of rotor system in, that will definitely not be allowed this time. So on the 8th of March, we're we're quite certain that we won't have any sort of rotor system for schools, which we know has been successful in lots of areas and has managed to keep that R number down. The issue about how safe schools are, well, it doesn't seem to be a topic of conversation anymore. This idea of trying to make schools safe places for schools for children to return to just doesn't seem to be on anybody's radar Boris Johnson keeps repeating this same mantra that schools are safe it's just the children that go into the schools that stop them being safe and (laughs) um it doesn't seem to be addressed Dr Nisreen Alwan has tweeted just this week she's a professor at Southampton she's a professor in public health and she's she's saying why are we not talking about how we can make the schools reopen again and what needs to be in place in order to allow social distancing to to take place. We need to talk about masks. We need to talk about what we now know about surface transmissions. Schools spent months not taking in books, not marking books on this belief that that was some way of stopping the virus spreading. Whereas now, looking at the information we have today, it doesn't look like that's a very effective way to stop the transmission of the virus. That's not, that's not an issue at all. What is an issue is crowded corridors, crowded classrooms, poorly ventilated rooms. And at the moment, we're going to return to having 30 plus children in the classroom without access to ventilation and without masks on. And it seems like that part of the conversation has just stopped. And one thing I've noticed that um, friends and family members have been talking about is the um, the question of whether you should make teachers a vaccination priority, particularly now that, you know, the oldest and most vulnerable people have been vaccinated. So I said, well, funnily enough, I have an education expert on the podcast, so I will ask her. Where do you, where do you stand on that? Do you think it is necessary? Now, it's a really tricky one because we know that when they were asking teachers to be prioritised before the top four categories had been vaccinated, that this was going to be a bad idea because if you did that, then the result would be that so many people 70 and over would 
be hospitalised or would lose their lives to the virus, that it just wasn't worth doing. It wasn't a sensible idea. And yet now those top four categories have been done. When we've been asking experts about what they think of prioritising teachers and other key workers at this point, we don't really seem to get a, a clear answer out of everybody. In short, they don't know. And that seems to be the reason why they're now not going to prioritise key workers at all. And the, the latest suggestions seem to say that they're just going to work their way down in age order and not really look at the vulnerability made by the job that you do. And lots of teachers are quite unhappy about this. On the one hand, they're being asked to return to work and start telling it's being told it's safe. But on the other, they're, 50, they're in their 50s and 60s or have different conditions that make them vulnerable and they're not getting the vaccine and it's it's almost seems to be like a, a point they don't want to back down from now they've said they're not going to prioritize teachers so they're not so what have pupils missed out on so far in terms of of not just learning but socialization what's going to be the sort of challenge in in, in sort of you know catching up after this missing year Oh, like you say, the socialisation is really the, the forefront of people's minds at the moment. I spend most of my week speaking to school leaders about what they think about what's happened during lockdown and what their priorities are when, when we do return. And every single one has said that it's the socialisation, it's for the younger children missing out on playtimes, for older children, it's that chance to spend time with their peers and to grow in self-confidence and do those things that we do at school that make us who we are. It's those character building moments that are as simple as your journey to school and getting on the bus with your friends and the school trip that you went on and taking part in the school play. Just all those tiny millions of things that we do in school, in social situations that make up who we are. The side of the, the academic aspects of it almost seem less important because that can be caught up on if you like because we can carry on teaching the children and we can there's no point chasing after this mysterious like lost learning we can't find it again because the time's gone it's 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 vanished it's not we're not going to ever get that back so everybody seems to agree that the most important thing when we return is to make sure that we're providing opportunities for children to build on those important relationships between them and the teachers their friends and with other adults who work in the school. Education expert Laura McInerney has suggested that there should be more money for counselling to sort of to, to spend on mental health provisions. Also, presumably, uh, in terms of making making sort of schools safer, if that is something the government wants to do, um, some of that might cost more money. Is there? Are you aware? Is money being made? Is extra money being made available for schools? Now, the money side of it is really interesting because we have this this figure of £1.5 billion. It's almost bond-level money, isn't it? Like, we have this £1.5 billion extra to spend on the catch-up fund. But when you think that to run, a, run schools for six months in the UK costs £30 billion, this £1.5 billion is just a little bit paltry, like it's not really going to cover it. And Laura makes an excellent point that we've underfunded our mental health services for children, for children and adolescents for decades now. The cuts in the mental health sector has just come back and hurt us in this time because, of course, children are suffering from being at home. They're being exposed to things in some families where it means that they're going to need counselling when they when the, when the lockdown ends. And They've been underfunded for so long, it's going to just put pressure on an already overpressured system. And I, I now want to ask about, I suppose, long term changes to, to how children are educated. Um, some people in tech are understandably very excited about making digital learning the new normal because uh, they'd love all things digital. Is this excitement um, mirrored among teachers? <laughs> Oh, the tech has been a, a, a real learning experience, I think, for a lot of teachers and a lot of schools have had to 
adopt new systems and get used to teaching live, online, recording lessons, delivering these lessons, partly recorded, partly live. And it's been a bit mixed. I do think that generally a lot of schools are quite excited about using the things that they have learned that have been a success during lockdown when we return to the classroom. But on the other hand, we've also realised that actually we do really need teachers and that live lessons and children in school is really the best way for, for young people to learn. An interesting point is the laptops. So these wonderful laptops that were all meant to be sent out when lockdown was first announced last March. And we now know that they're not even going to all be delivered by the time that the schools are meant to return on March the 8th this year. Um, it does mean that a lot of children are going to have more tech than we've ever had before. And speaking to um, some of the bigger academy trusts, they've got some grand plans for these laptops and ways of trying to turn what's been a, a pretty awful situation into one that's a little bit better by using this new tech to try and improve outcomes for the most disadvantaged children in their schools. And this year, uh, after the sort of fiasco of exams last year, exams will be replaced by teacher assessments. Now, if this proves to be both efficient and fair, do you think this could put the future of exams in doubt? After last summer and the disaster we had with the centre-assessed grades and the complete fiasco of trying to moderate these using the, the statistical model, um, I think everybody had a, a newfound love for exams. But <laughs> this year, the tone seems to have really changed amongst teachers. Although the centre-assessed grades were a complete disaster and we realised that actually it is very difficult for teachers to decide upon grades with absolutely zero notice. Um, even having a, a year to try and sort this out, we're still in a, a, com a complete mess about it. We don't know how these teacher assessed grades are going to work this year. Um, we do know that they're floating ideas like having a, a mini exam, which was going to be compulsory and now it's optional. And then the exam boards were going to provide the exam and now they're not. Now schools are going to provide them and they're going to use past papers that children who have tutors and parents who can have access to the internet can find these past papers and make their children practice them and check them with the mark schemes it's it's um it's a tricky one but exams aren't perfect i mean this is a, a perfect time to start talking about what what we actually want out of education what is the purpose of sending our children to school for five hours a day and teaching them all these different things what what qualifications do we want them to have at the end of it We've known for a long time that our exam system is not perfect and that actually a quarter of all grades are wrong by off-call's own admission. And this is partly to do with the way that exams are marked and you can have two people mark a paper and be completely correct in their marking but come up with two different, exam two different grades and two different marks for that same paper. And part of the problem is that our grades are too broad. We have a nine-to-one grading system and that means it's actually really difficult to say well, that child's a five and that child's a six. The, the differences between the grades is so small that what we're asking teachers to do this summer in coming up with grades themselves, it's, it's almost an impossible task. It's hard enough when you've got an exam with a mark to generate that grade, but it's going to be even harder when we're going to ask teachers to do it based on what sounds like it's going to be a Viva style conversation between student and teacher. So the, the child with the best chat is going to get the, the highest grades. And I think, yes, exams probably do need to look at and we need to have a, a, a rethink of what, what we want out of education. But I think getting rid of exams altogether would be a mistake. And finally, I've been homeschooling, Ros has been homeschooling, um, and you end up developing opinions on uh, the way that, that people teach and on, on curriculums. Uh, there was uproar in Twitter over um, fronted adverbials, which are, are nowhere near as complex as, as, as they seem. But a lot of people are just like, well, I never, I never, you know, learned this at school. Why are they being taught? There's an article by George Monbiot in The Guardian where he wants to see schools introduce what he calls ecological education, which is a very George Monbiot priority. And presumably other people are going to have their own sort of priorities about what should be taught and how it should be taught. Do you think that, that, that when kids go back, that the experience of homeschooling is going to make a whole generation of parents a lot more opinionated? Uh, because now they've actually had to pay attention to, to to what the kids are being taught. 
It's really interesting to hear discussions amongst school leaders about how parent interactions have changed and how much more interested parents are now in not just their own child and how their own child's progress, but the curriculum generally. And I think that perhaps when we do return, we'll have more more input from parents about what what's what's actually being taught in class and even I think the the styles of learning and the styles of teaching that we we have in different schools we have an interesting system in in England where it's meant to be by choice and you can choose which school to send your child to but for so many people there is no choice they have to send their child to the school that's geographically closest to them or is the one that's easy has the best transport links for them to get their child to school and the problem with these sorts of conversations when we get into disliking a certain book that's on the curriculum or or a topic in maths or the absence of a topic that a parent thinks is particularly important and has been missed out you can only do so much you can object and you can you can speak up and ask for things to be included but ultimately when you don't really have a lot of choice about where to send your child those conversations tend to be to, to be stunted by this this lack of optionality that parents don't have that parents don't have the chance to send their child to a different school if they want to well terrific Gronia Hallahan thanks so much uh, for for explaining this situation no thank you Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where we pick two things for the world of politics, one to swipe left and one to swipe right. (laughs) (laughs) Roz, uh, it's your turn this week. What are you choosing? Yeah, I'm going to get seriously wonky this week. So I'm going to uh, talk about two concepts, universal basic income, which you probably know about, and universal basic capital, which you may not know about. And most of us know the basics, as it were, of universal basic income. It's a minimal income for everyone for the foreseeable future. And as we've discussed before on this podcast, COVID has made it a lot more thinkable. And in egalitarian terms, it does have a certain appeal. But what if we were to think differently, rather than a a constant stream of a small amount of money, why not give every 18-year-old, say, a lump sum that would enable them to actually do something a bit bigger, rather than just sort of keeping them just above the breadline, would enable them to maybe start a business or do the training that they wanted to do or not have to get into so much university debt, and not just a really small amount which wouldn't make a great deal of difference because the evidence seems to suggest that if people have a small amount, they will be more likely to blow it because they think, oh, it's nothing much. I'll just I'll just you know, <laughs> spend it on a holiday in the Bahamas or a lot of drugs or something. Go big or go home. <laughs> exactly. If you go big and if you give them a bit more like £10,000, which is a lot of money, but in the context of the amount of being spent on fighting the pandemic, perhaps not as much as it might have seemed a year ago. If you give them more, then you're more likely to spend it in a, in a more sensible way. And it would be, if it was aimed at young people, an acknowledgement of everything that young people have gone through in the last year and a gesture to intergenerational fairness. And we haven't really seen that at all yet from the government. We have seen absolutely no effort to try and redress that balance. And it doesn't look as if there will be any uh, any, I won't say raid, because I don't think it would be a raid on pensioners' incomes to help young people. It's not It's not being thought of so far. But I think this could just be, and it's an idea that's been put forward by Julian Legrand, who's a big old new Labour grandee, but in this case, I think he's onto something. It would enable people to be a bit more proactive, to be to do something that they want to do, rather than just keeping them at a low level of getting by. Cool. Thanks for us. That was wonky. Yeah, <laughs> I actually had to think about that one. I just thought you were going to do politicians' haircuts or something. <laughs> you didn't really think that, did you, Jared? No. That was serious nutrition. 
We've reached the end of the show, which means that it's time to sink our hands into the digital brand tub and pluck out a question for But Your Emails. This week, Sandy Murphy asks, a lot of people I know, even those who don't like the Tories, don't blame the government for its failures on coronavirus. Why do the public have this collective delusion that six months into the pandemic, the government were helpless babes just trying their best and not professionals who should have been consulting scientists or economists? I'll have a go. I think I think because people need to. I think it's a profound psychological need to think that. To believe that those in charge of the country in a crisis are either clueless or intentionally wicked while one is in that country and the crisis is ongoing is a pretty terrifying thing. So I think it's really natural to try and, and tell yourself it's really not that bad. Um, and I think it will vanish once the crisis is over. I think people will look back and think, wow, they really fucked this up. <laughs> Nina? You know, Sandy, I don't know. I honestly don't know. When you kind of look at the catalogue of errors and how <laughs> badly the UK was performing, you know, compared to other countries in the vicinity, the fact that the government wasn't getting a harder ride was astounding to me. Um, if there is a saving grace, it is that their vaccination drive has been fantastic. And that, of course, for the government might kind of help bury some of the catastrophic failures of how they handled the pandemic at the beginning. And I, I really don't know why they didn't come under more fire for that. Ross, do you think it's that a lot of people just aren't following all the details and all the kind of the timings and the policy failures and the behind the scenes reporting? And they just think, well, we're constantly told that this is an unprecedented crisis. And I don't know, I probably struggle with an unprecedented crisis. So they're simply not aware of all the things that the government could have done better. I think it's that people have a great deal of sympathy for Boris Johnson. And that's not what any of us want to hear. And it's not what any of us personally have. But what he has been very good at doing during the pandemic is conveying his utter misery at having to bring in measures and lockdowns and so on that he profoundly doesn't want to do. And by conveying that and making it clear to people how much he has hated telling us all to stay at home and not go out, he has created a feeling of sympathy, certainly among the people, I think, who, who voted for him in the last election and who do want to believe that he will he will succeed and have invested a lot of uh, or a certain amount of political capital in the Johnson project. They sympathise with the agonies that, you know, he clearly goes through each time he has to do another late lockdown. They can really identify with that. And he's been very good at showing them just how much he's been suffering in uh, doing that. So I think that is, unfortunately, the main explanation. I've just had another thought, actually. And it might be to do with the economics of it, right? The Treasury has handled this very well, I would argue. And I read the other day that we've had... £240 billion in savings um, from the British citizens during the course of the pandemic, thanks to furlough and literally not being able to spend your money anywhere else. <laughs> so maybe there's been a sense of it's not actually that bad uh, because financially it hasn't hurt a lot of people. That's not to say it hasn't hurt some. Well, one of the curious things that came out of the US election is that everybody, you know, the received wisdom was that, um, you know, Trump would have won without the pandemic and the pandemic, you know, favoured Biden in every way. And actually, what a lot of people found was that they had received a check from the government because Congress had passed, you know, uh, an assistance plan and they'd received money from the government. And so a lot of people who weren't, again, following the, the epidemiology and the policy uh, failures they just thought, well, I've, I've been given some money. And I, I think that's a huge part of it in terms of the way that Rishi Sunak's standing is still extremely high, even though if you're following the reports of how he has consistently been the main reason for delaying lockdowns and therefore causing people to die. Just, it, but that doesn't, none of that seems to be hurting him because he's still giving people money. It's a good way to be popular. All that's left now is to thank Nina, Thanks, Dorian. Alex. Thank you for having me. Roz. Thank you. And our guest, Gronia Hallahan. 
In the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers, we're discussing Adam Curtis's new documentary series, Can't Get You Out of My Head. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon Doesn't Want to Buy Corner Shop. But now here's some special shout outs to a very patient group of Patreon backers. They signed up nearly a year ago. And because we are as efficient as Gavin Williamson, we managed to misplace their names <laughs> on a very large spreadsheet. So here they are now. I hope you're still around. Sorry, guys. Thanks for your support and your patience to Sylvia, Mary Lusco, Tabitha Brady, Nim Chimpsky, Laura Pullen, Joel Worth, and Rob Hutchins. And many thanks from me and apologies to Neil Henderson, Nicholas Day, Terry Kelk, Brendan O'Hare, Pinak Saikia, and Bob Boyce. And thanks for your support from me to Helen Bowman, Rebecca Lewis, John Inu, Jane Smallman, Walter Steinhuber, sounds Germanic, and Laurent Nordman. And thanks to me to Alistair Thompson, Tom Hadland, Lee Bruckshaw, Bronwyn, and Berwick Copley, and Paul Flynn. Oh God, one now. It was presented by Doreen Linsky with Ros Taylor, Alex Andreu, and Nina Schick. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? This is a Podmasters production. In this week's extra bit for our beloved Patreon backers, we're discussing Adam Curtis's new series of films for the BBC iPlayer, Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World. Because I interviewed him recently, I've watched almost the full eight hours, but Curtis sums up his big argument in episode six, so I've asked the panellists to watch just that one. Um, Can I just get a quick sense first of which of you are Curtis maniacs and which are Curtis sceptics? I am a Curtis sceptic. Likewise. Um, I'm both. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a Curtis maniac. If we're talking about him as a filmmaker, incredible visual storyteller. I'm a Curtis skeptic. If he's to be considered a, a purveyor of a deeper truth. So Okay. Both. I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Okay. Um, all right, Alex, if you're, if you're a skeptic here, what do you think of Curtis's thesis here about how we ended up in, I mean, his argument essentially is we, we're in this uh, paralyzed state of desperately wanting change, but not knowing how to achieve it or even what it might be. And then what you're seeing, I suppose, it, what you know, Gramsci would call morbid symptoms cropping up, whether that's Black Lives Matter or Brexit or whatever. It's people that want things to change, but they don't really know what to do about it. Um, and he obviously takes you all the way back to you know the post-war period yeah um what did you what did you make of that historical narrative or or that they don't really want things to change which was also a big strand in in the theory that you cast yourself as someone who is a revolutionary for change but your actions mean you're quite comfortable in the role of being a revolutionary for change which means you don't take the action that will bring about actual change. That was one of the takeaways for me. Um, I mean, I, I, I have to say I struggled with it. I, I watched two episodes to, to do it justice. I struggled a little bit with, um, it, it seemed to talk a lot about how we can look at data and discern patterns which may be there or may not be there, and how if you look for particular pa- patterns in data, you're bound to find them, and at the same time be relatively unaware that as a documentary it was doing exactly that. It was sort of landing on seemingly random points, A, B, C, D, and F, in order to tell a really particular narrative, which is dramatized and in some ways sensationalized by music and effects and things like that. So it was telling a really particular story, but pretending it was completely detached. And that was where I struggled with it. Well, you see, Curtis's uh, response to that, because I kind of put this idea to him, and he says that he's not pretending at all, is that it's so, his style is so idiosyncratic with the use of archive footage, with the use of music, it's clearly narrated by 
him adam curtis not a kind mm. of uh you know a sort of an anonymous uh authoritative announcer and actually he is being very open about the fact that he is making a very individual argument a sort of essayistic argument and these are things that he thinks are connected and this is his his argument and you can sort of agree with that or not but i don't think he would say that he was presenting it as if like this is clearly what happened and the most important figures in this story are Tupac Shakur and Chairman Mao's wife I, I, <laughs> I do think I do think he's quite honest that this is this is his take and you might have a different one yeah I mean look like I said if I were watching it and not with and that was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. You'll be helping the podcast and would appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. See you next week.